everybody. Thank you for tuning in to episode nine of the Broke Down Podcast. This is Jonathan, and I'm really excited about this episode. We've got a special guest, Jesse Jarnow, on the show. He's a writer and deadhead, and he and I get into some good discussion on 1967, Grateful Dead. So hopefully you'll stick around for that. First, we're going to do a little bit of news. So Phil did his little tour uh, on the East Coast here uh, around Halloween, and I was lucky enough to see the DC show at Anthem, which is a brand new venue in DC. It was pretty great. Had a good time with my wife and Matt and RJ from the HF Pod, as well as RJ's wife. We... Uh, we all threw down pretty well. Had a good time. Uh, it was nice seeing other folks. A lot of familiar faces. I saw a guy I hadn't seen in over 20 years who, last time I saw him, he was not a deadhead. But in recent years, he's caught on and become quite a fan. And it was good to see Kevin there. And Kevin, I hope you're listening. The show was outstanding. We had Robert Randolph and Nikki Bloom sitting in throughout the show. And then in the second set, we had the horns from Preservation Hall Jazz Band. And then Phil and company left the stage, leaving just Preservation Hall. And their keyboard and drummer came out, and they gave us a couple of songs as a full ensemble. And then they left, and Phil and company came back for Terrapin. It was terrific. There's a great review you can check out on a really great music site called The Mellow Maniacs. Uh, I'll go ahead and link to it in the show notes so you can see that review and get a look at that site. Dead & Company Tour is about to kick off. They start on November 9th out in San Francisco, and then they come east for a bunch of shows. I will be at the DC show and hope to see you there. I'll be the uh, deadhead-looking guy, you know, the one with the beard and the Grateful Dead t-shirt. I'll be giving out stickers, so if you see me, say hi. What else is going on? I don't know. We've got a long show for you, so what... what I've done is I've gone ahead and cut this show in half. So we're going to do this in two parts, which is the first time we've done this for the Broke Down Podcast, but hey, we're still pretty new, so there's going to be a lot of firsts. So what we're going to do is we're going to have half this interview, some great music, all talking about 1967, and we will wrap at some point and come back in two weeks for the rest of the interview and some more music. Before I let you go, I want to go ahead and remind you to check us out on Twitter at BrokeDownPod, where we do like I live tweet listening to Grateful Dead shows from this day in history and keep you up to date with news and other sorts of things. Uh, also on Facebook, you'll find us under Broke Down Podcast, And there's an Instagram now, BrokeDownPod on Instagram. And, of course, you can shoot us an email at brokedownpod at gmail.com. And the website with all the show notes and the details of what's happening and links to things that I mention here and there, you can find that at brokedownpodcast.blogspot.com. So check that out. Send us any feedback you have. Uh, let us know if we're doing things right. Let me know if you prefer this breaking the long, long episode into multiple parts. Maybe it's a little easier to digest. Maybe you prefer it all at once. Either way, uh, reach out, let us know. If you have good comments, go to iTunes and review us and rate us and leave some nice remarks there. It really helps us out, helps other people find the show, and really appreciate that. Of course, you could also just tell your friends to listen to us. Anyways, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get into this interview with Jesse Jarnow, and I hope you enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with Jesse Jarnow. Jesse is a writer, music fan, and dead freak. And Jesse, I want to thank you for coming on the Broke Down Podcast. 
Cool. Thanks for thanks for having me. I really enjoy your uh, Dead Freaks uh, tweets for the anniversary of the <laughs> Dead shows, and um, of course, you've been tapped to do some liner notes for Grateful Dead releases. Um, yeah, that that's been insane. That's you know that's sort of the kind of the highest honor you can get as a, as a Grateful Dead writer, and it's. Um, yeah, yeah they, they pulled you across the threshold onto the other side. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes I get to hang out on the other side. <laughs> very, very rarely, very briefly. Yeah, that that's pretty great. Um, yeah. And, and uh, well, so I want to talk uh, maybe a little bit more about that and about your books, mm -hmm. which uh, of which I'm a fan. But let's start at the beginning of sure. Grateful Dead. Where did you? Where was your first exposure to Grateful Dead? Um, my first exposure to the dead was probably just my parents' record collection. Um, they had Skull and Roses in there. And, you know, I, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd definitely read, read about the dead, and that probably pushed me to, to, to pulling that out. Um, and that was, you know, when I was in, like, I don't remember what grade that was, sixth or seventh grade or eighth grade, maybe eighth grade, um, where I was just sort of pulling, you know, going through my parents' record collection and starting to buy things at like thrift stores and, and garage sales and stuff. And kind of right after I got into Skull and Roses, I picked up American Beauty and Working Man's Dead at a garage sale. And really quickly, I think I, oh, right, because the, the record store in my town on Long Island sold exactly one magazine. <laughs> the magazine was Relics. Nice. Um, and um, so I bought, I bought Relics and, and, kind of figured out how to, you know, send contact people in the want ads and, and started collecting tapes like that. And you know So you kinda... jumped pretty quickly into oh, oh, mail yeah. order taping I... tape trading rather than you didn't have like a a neighbor or high school buddy who had an older brother or something who started passing tapes. No, I mean yeah, no, I started I mean I met those people pretty quickly once I started trading tapes. So my my tape trading really Oh, oh, and I taped stuff off the radio. That's another huge oh, yeah. part of that. Was was uh, the Grateful Dead Hour, and also um, more importantly for me was Morning Dew on WBAI, which is still on. Um, more importantly, because they were on every week, and they had like a, I think a two hour slot, so they, they could play a full set, not just you know, not just not just highlights. And then every quarter i don't know a couple times a year they would have fundraising drives where it would just be morning dew all night on wbai from like 10 p.m to 6 a.m or 5 a.m or something and i would stay up all night with you know a box tapes of tapes and... in my, you know a box of tapes in my living room and tape you know it was great yeah, that's awesome <laughs> I, I, I have very very fond memories of those of those of those nights well, it's funny you mentioned uh, Skull and Roses because before we uh, got on the on the line here, I was actually checking my Twitter and looking at some things. I noticed that today is actually the today the day that we're recording this, which for listeners is uh, late October. What is this? The twenty something, twenty um, fourth. Yeah, you know, is the forty sixth anniversary of the release of Skull and Roses today, nineteen seventy one. Yeah, yeah, the beginning of the Deadheads mailing list. Exactly, and um, lots of other stuff. Um, yeah, Skull and Roses, kind of a weird anomalous album in some ways. Got a, it's really, got a Jerry Jerry piano overdub on it. That's kind of one of my little favorite footnotes about that. Right. It's a it's a perfect a, slab though, you know, introductory dead. It's got your rock and roll, you know, your you know like best bar band in the world kind of rock and roll from set that 
that 1970 dead, but it gets a little right. bit weird with the other one. Um, good right, hooks. right. We're, yeah, no, I mean, that, you know, that side with the other one is definitely what, what, what pulled me in <laughs> initially. And then it was like, oh, okay, how can I find more like this? There's probably a litmus test. We could probably start sampling, and maybe I'll do this as I go forward on the show, is uh, what song pulled you in? And I think that'll really tell us a bit about what kind of head you are. Um, oh, right. If the yeah. other one is what got you, then uh, that might tell right. us a certain story. Yeah. The other thing that really got me was somewhere in there, uh, I think right after it came out, my mom, for my birthday or for you know the holidays or something, bought me a copy of One from the Vault, which is you know another super early important show for me, and that the uh, the help flip Frank there. That's you know another very early favor. Just the way they slam into it out of the out of the Bill Graham introduction. A, um, that that was that that like extreme sort of that extreme tightness, which is kind of funny because that's not really what the Dead are known for. Not but, at all, um, but they they they, had but, it going but, but, on. but that, they did, and that that show really that was that was probably you know, one of the very first shows I knew front to back. Wow. That's a great one. I remember when that CD came out and it was, um, I had heard part of the show before. Um, I had, had not yet acquired a LP bootleg of it, but, um, cause although right. they had circulated kind of far and wide, um, and it, it was definitely a big moment when I got that CD. It was, it was quite a, yeah. quite a great release. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so you dead fan did you see the dead i saw, I saw two shows i okay. saw um and I, it was after i was into the tape after i was into tape trading uh, you know i guess i'm must have been trading tapes for like a year before you know i was pretty young i was like seventh like like i said like seventh grade or eighth grade or so 90 so yeah i was in must have been seventh grade or so when I discovered them. And then the, the first show I got to see was uh, the spring of my freshman year of high school. Um, I saw um, March 23rd, 94 at Nessa Coliseum on Long Island. And then I saw them again at the garden in the fall and being, you know, and I had, I had a great time. Like it was super fun. I, you know, the first, first one I went with my dad who's, you know, who's, who's, who's ahead not not a dead head, but just a just a head. Cool. Um, and the second one, the second one, I went with a good friend of mine. But I, neither of the shows like really grabbed me in the way that the tapes did. Um, there were parts of this. Again, this is probably pretty telling. Uh, drum space were like the the was like my favorite part of those shows. Right. I'm like yes, they're jamming finally. <laughs> um, and yeah, but um, but the tapes were really. Were, were really the thing for me. Just that, like, that, you know, I, I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but really just that, like, that intimate pre-75 sound is what is what I like. Very cool. Um, um, even still. <laughs> uh, fair enough. I, I think that you will get a lot of agreement with that in our community. As a music writer, I know you did a lot of magazine work. I believe I saw you did some, you did some writing on about, you know, about fish, which, you know, I come from the fish scene as well. So I know I've seen your name through there. Um, at what yeah. point did writing about music become like a thing for you? When did you realize this was your path or. I mean, 
so writing, just writing by itself has, has always been kind of like the, the thing for me. Um, I mean, along, along with, you know, listening to music, but kind of since the, the first time I could string words together, like on, on a piece of paper, like first grade or second grade, I just remember getting like my first journal and just like, Oh, I can like make up a story, you know, some ridiculous story about a kid and his, you know, pet cat or something like that. Um, so I was always writing like obsessively. Um, and that, I really actually couldn't tell you when it dovetailed with writing about music. Um, I ran uh, some, I had some zines in, I guess I did like a video game zine in like fourth or fifth grade and like school newspaper kind of stuff. Cool. And somewhere, and somewhere in there I started like writing like occasional like record reviews or writing about you know music in the school paper and it it kind of it kind of grew out of that but it was always it was always just you know writing um and and when I went to college I was same same kind of thing where I was doing a lot of other writing besides music writing um but music writing also seems like um like maybe the, the easiest open path for me in terms of being able to you know get paid to to write that that it certainly hmm. certainly that certainly the late 1990s that that was, there was that was a that was a real viable career option maybe less so these days, um, but you know started writing you know was also posting a ton on Usenet on like you know Rec Music Fish and Rec Music well probably not as much on Rec Music Gnet probably more on Rec Music Fish and you know mailing lists and things like that and you know that's sort of Step by step, kind of worked its way into into writing in print. I think my first like print music writing, besides the school newspaper, was uh, Dupree's Diamond News. Oh, I had uh, I had uh, had pieces in like the last issue, maybe the last two issues, and then relics, and you know, kind of up the ladder from there. Well, I'm gonna have to go and pull my uh, Dupree's <laughs> library out of the attic and uh, <laughs> take a look at those pieces. Um, Terrifying. Yeah, well, you know, we all look back and shudder at things we might have done, but it's it's a path, right? Yeah, it's, it's true. And so you wrote about fish, you did some articles, quite a few articles, judging from yeah. some my my limited research. Um, I'm not yep. a, I'm not a big research guy. Um I spend more time listening to Grateful Dead, mind you, but uh, <laughs> but you wrote a book about Yola Tango. Uh, yeah, Big Day Coming, Yola Tango and the Rise of Indie Rock. And I I have listened to Yola Tango a bit over the years. And I think somebody said this to me in another another podcast recording. I listened to, the, to this band. I don't think it was Yola Tango. I listened to this band because I knew I should. And so that's why I first <laughs> listened to them, because I knew I should. And I quite like them, but I don't think I get them. Well, I know I don't get them anywhere near on the scale that you do. Maybe you could give our listeners a picture as to why a deadhead should sure. check out your yeah, I can I can definitely do that. Um or try to do that. Um so the only thing that we're a band that I listened to in college a bit, you know, I had an album or two of theirs. Um all while I was discovering fish, I was kinda and and the dead and, and kind of the you know, the jammy world. Um I was also kind of on this parallel track where I just got really into Sonic Youth and 
you know, kind of bands that were sort of around the knitting factory in that era. Um, so that was kind of a, a separate development. But when I got to New York, uh, I moved here after college. I graduated in 2001. Um, I had some roommates who were, who were away at Teal Tango. That was, that was some musical common ground. And then it turned out that they just played all the time in New York. Um, and I started to go see them. And every time I went to go see them, it was something completely different. Um, one of the very first times I saw them in New York, they were doing um, this really beautiful set of music, uh, these kind of scores to underwater documentaries wow. um, by uh, Jean Penlevet, uh, the, the French, sort of the French, French director. And there's these big, spacey, atmospheric instrumentals that are kind of... Um, they're, they sound they're, there's definitely an improvised quality to them. Um, so that was that was a real like oh wow these these guys jam also. So then I you know like I said I started seeing them and then like one time the members of the Sunra Orchestra would come out and like improvise with them behind their songs for the whole set. Um, and you know sometimes they would do these acoustic shows where they had this kind of like whole other repertoire and it would be like you know, acoustic versions of Yola Tango songs, and they have this insanely deep um, covers repertoire that, you know, I kind of hate to say it, sort of makes Fish seem a little basic <laughs> sometimes, but but they they have, you know, hundreds over, they've done over a thousand different covers over the years. And, you know, every year they do a benefit on WFMU where people call in and, you know, pledge money and they'll, They'll play any song by anybody, not wow. necessarily well, you know, <laughs> but kind of, but, but, you know, charmingly. Um, and, the, but the thing that really got me in, into Yola Tango in like a deadhead kind of way was they did these eight night Hanukkah runs at Maxwell's, which is this tiny little club in Hoboken, um, where they got their start. Ira, the guitarist used to be the sound guy there and, and he and Georgia used to DJ there. Um, so they play eight nights. Every night had different openers, um, where it'd be a band and a comedian and them and Yola Tango. Uh, none of it announced in advance. You know, set lists different every night. Um, you know, a couple of songs repeated over over the eight nights, but really more songs than not um, not repeated. And just this range of stuff that they do where they have, you know, sort of noisy spaced out jams, but they also have this really quiet acoustic side. Um, there's kind of this, um, like real swinging R and B side that they have to them. It's kind of influenced by NRBQ. Um, they just have this huge range of stuff that they do. And the thing, I mean, and they do it. There's a real like emotional heft to it. There's, you know, sort of, a lot of a lot of really sad melancholy kind of songs that 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 do grab me, you know. Wow. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, so there's there's you know a, a lot of sides to Yola Tango. Like one of those Hanukkah shows, like Tortoise played with them for the whole show. Like just you had Yola Tango wow. and the guys from Tortoise up there just improvising improvising parts along with you know every every tune. It's it, it goes they go really 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 deep like. You can totally be Yola Tango tape collector or, or you know, Yola Tango head. They're uh, <laughs> reviving, uh, reviving uh, Hanukkah this year. Uh, Maxwell, they're not, uh, Maxwell's sort of closed, so they're doing it at the uh, at the Bowery Ballroom, and I'm 
I'm in for all eight nights. I'm pretty excited about it. Terrific. Wow. Well, you've uh, you've cemented my interest, and I will. Go back. <laughs> cool. I, I have actually have a handful of shows of theirs from uh, NYC Taper on my phone that I I oh, go nice. to now and then. I'm I'm working on it. My current project with them is really to just kind of listen to the same things several, uh, over and over till I kind of grok those yeah. and then continue yeah. spreading out. And their studio albums really are the starting point. Um, uh, I Can Hear the Heart Beating is one, and um, and then Nothing Turning it, Turned Itself Inside Out are both kind of, to me, the, the two key studio records. Um, and then, to me, that kind of frames their 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 live sound pretty well cool noted um i, I did spend some time uh mining those records but i can always go back and uh, i should go back <laughs> and get back to them nice. so um the next book was a bit different uh it was <laughs> heads a biography of psychedelic america and i read this book uh, rabidly when i got it i <laughs> tore right through it and then reread it um it, this book if I may uh, tell our listeners before I ask you to tell our listeners about it, it's, you know, it starts with a single point on, on the map um, at, at not exactly the beginning, but a beginning point because you have to start somewhere and then just follows the growth and the development of psychedelic America through decades and across as it spreads across the country. Um, beautifully and really just some of the stories some of the things i was aware of because i've been reading books that touch on these kinds of things for years but a lot of things that were just connections and things that were very new to me um and uh i mean it's just what this it turned into a pretty broad work um but what was your springboard where did you where did you I mean, what did you set out to write when you started with this <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you. I'm 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 really glad you liked it. Um, it's hard to say. You know, my springboard. There were, you know, dozens, if not hundreds, of them over. You know, in the however long I was a, a dead freak before before writing that book and, and an acid taker. Um, so I mean, I, you know, in that sense, taking acid and listening to the dead were, were the springboard. Um, and I guess what I set out to do was to, to, to write a book about that relationship in terms of why it's important to American culture. Um, and in, in kind of tracing that sort of pulling out all these other sort of plots and themes and, and sort of kind of, you know, the dead obviously didn't invent acid. So kind of tracing back to the, where, where that came in. And, you know, acid wasn't the first psychedelic in, in the United States. Uh, by any by any stretch, and kind of there's a whole prehistory of psychedelic America as well that, that that's important that I didn't really get into in the book, and and maybe feel a little guilty for that. But kind of the whole you know sort of the the, the peyote culture that existed long before you know the Wingos with the acid showed up. Um, but yeah, I you know a springboard for me was was growing growing up in you know suburban United States in the mid to late nineties when acid was completely plentiful. And I had, you know, I read the electrical acid test and I read, you know, various books about the sixties and biographies of the dead. And there were just all these stories that 
did, that I, I wanted to know. Like, you know, this, you know, a lot of the stories ended with, you know, oh, yeah, and then the Brotherhood of Eternal Love got busted in 1972 making acid, and, you know, and then there's kind of like a blank. And it's like, well, well acid, who were they? Acid, and what happened yeah, after well, that? And why do I yeah, have like, it yeah. now? Right, yeah, acid didn't go away, so what's going on? Um, and just, you know, kind of trying to draw those, draw those connections out. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the dead were, you know, kind of the through line there, which is sort of, you know, I, I kind of knew that going in, and that's sort of pretty obvious if you if you look at it. But actually, like, kind of proving that or, you know, finding the people who, who would say, like, oh, yeah, I, you know, was selling acid at dead shows in this year, or, you know, there was a guy traveling with the band, you know, traveling around, following the band around. I picked up Astor from him in 74, and then I passed along my connection to my friend in 77, and, like, be able to, like, you know, draw draw that line out and, and, and was, was something I wanted to try to do. I think the um, there were a lot of surprises, but I think one of the things that was, I don't know if surprise is the right word, one of the things I was most ignorant of was the connection to... The, the New York City portion, you know, the connection into the park and then to the graffiti scene um, in New York yeah, City, and I, which I, that was com- completely new to me. I knew the, the, the faintest little bit of that going in. I mean, that, that, it was, I mean, that stuff wasn't even on the proposal. Um, I had read... So yeah, I had read... Um, Jeff Chang wrote this amazing hip hop history. Can't stop, won't stop. Right. And I, there's a reference in there to a great a, a street gang called the Grateful Dead, which which shows up in heads a little <laughs> bit. But that was why I was kind of digging and going back into into Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Was said read about that, and then I came across a reference in there to the Rolling Thunder writers, and like they were you know the long hair hippie graffiti guys, and that was sort of all it said, and found you know found um bill rock um found bill on facebook probably um and he you know went went up to and hung out with him for an afternoon and just you know interviewed him and talked and he showed me a bunch of pictures and he introduced me to some of the other guys and then kind of like midway through the conversation he's like oh yeah and we were the west coast east coast connection for assets (laughs) for Starting in 1970 and going until 1990, it's like, what? I, I, it's like, what? <laughs> I'm just interviewing you about, like, I thought I was just interviewing them about, like, you know, liking the dead and taking acid and and doing graffiti, like, which was enough to blow my mind anyway. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and then he's like, oh no, yeah, the park, the park was the acid connection, and then he kind of sort of laid out how that happened, and it's like, oh. Shit. Well, got another story to figure out there. Um, it was great. It was, it was like three stories for the price of one. Yeah, it's amazing. The, um, I mean, as you said it, you know, you knew that the dead were the th- a through line, but the, right. The, I, but I, I didn't know a, how much. Yeah. And you know, living in Ewark certainly made it easier to research that stuff because a lot of those guys are still around. But um, yeah, I was super excited. That was, I was. I was I was walking on the ceiling for weeks after me. You have to figure that one out. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so let's talk a, real quick about um, 
you know, first of all, as I said, I love the book. And um, is will it be a paperback edition or? or yeah, you, you yeah, know? yeah. It's still it's uh, it, it just went into a second hardcover printing. Which oh, I'm good. Totally psyched that because um, it was it was actually kind of hard to find for a while, and you can you can tell the difference between the printings because the, the cover material is slightly different. Uh, but it's a paperback scheduled for uh, late next year. Uh, okay, still a while, still a while away. But still, hard, um, hard, second hardcover edition. So that means folks can should be able to get it pretty easily wherever yeah, books yeah, are sold. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, and um, I'll, you know, there'll be some corrections and, and additions in the in the paperback, but probably not that many. Though, God, I, I I'm definitely accumulating files worth of additional stories that <laughs> maybe someday I'll get to write more of them. Uh, a second volume, perhaps. Yeah, something like that. And so you've also we met, touched on this briefly. You've done some writing for liner notes. Now, uh, what was it the, oh, yeah. the the reissue of the first album, first dead album? With I've, the... I've done a few. I did the uh, the first one I did for them was um, I don't remember which number it was. It was the Dave's picks from the Academy in New York in '72 Great that show. had the first they had the first uh, first first jammed out trucking. So it was the 26th, maybe 27th. I don't remember which night it was. And then I've done a couple of things for them since then. And it's always just so fun to like go on a deep dive and know that people are actually going to be reading it. Like, I, I love that that is a thing that deadheads do is read liner notes. Like that's such a liner notes are such an endangered species. True and as are. a writer, they're, they're so much like, I love reading them and I grew up loving to read liner notes and I, yeah, it it means a lot to me to be able to like get to write them. Like I definitely don't take that job for granted. Um, so I did that uh, that seventy two one. I did the some of the fair. I don't like the shorter version of the fair the well release. I did some stuff in the thirty trips box set. There's like a whole like there's a scroll in there. It's like every every song in the order in which it was debuted with like a little thumbnail description. And what else? The, uh, the 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 recent there's a recent Dave's picks the, the Eugene seventy eight the Close Encounters show. Right. Um, I might be and oh right and the one that you mentioned the the sixty six show which is which actually segues perfectly into what we're going to be talking about today because um, it's old old weird dead that I feel like people don't pay enough attention to. Um, and I think it's really, really uh, rewarding to, to dig into kind of these old old periods of, of, of the dead because there's, there's so much left to be uncovered. That's true. And, uh, yeah, let's get right into it. So um, I reached out to you and asked you uh, if you'd be on. You graciously, graciously accepted, and I asked you what you wanted to talk about. And you said, well, let's do something old, weird. And uh, we landed on 1967. So, yeah. Um, Cool thing about 67, well, it's a good and a bad situation, is that we don't have a lot of material, but right. this way we can rev we can pretty much review it all uh, here tonight. Yeah, and it's, you know, every show from 67 is, is really quite different from what surrounds it. Um, you know, there are a couple instances where there's, like, shows from consecutive nights, but, like, the repertoire was changing so quickly then that you can date show, you know, you, you really, you really see them transforming in these very broad ways. Cause it's like, you have a tape from March and then a tape from like June and then 
you know, tape, you know, tape from August or, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating to me because, you know, I've been doing these anniversary tweets, um, where I've been listening to the shows on the 40th anniversary and on their 50th anniversary and going through 1977 is really, is excellent. Like I, I never really had gone into the fall tour in that much depth, but, but Deadheads know 77 really well. Like, you know, I, I, you know, I've had many conversations this year about the, the finer points between, you know, Cornell and Buffalo and, and Boston Garden and, you know, like, you know, the nuances <laughs> of, of, of May versus of May versus June or whatever. Um, but 67 is such a mystery in, in so many ways. Like, it's like, it's the summer of love. The dead were, like, in the hate. You know, Mickey Hart joins the second drummer in 67. They put out their first album in the spring. There's all this stuff happening, and like, you know, I, I feel like they're, they're. I feel like most deadheads don't don't listen to a lot of '67, and and you know, I wouldn't mind trying to trying to change that. Um, it's it's easily overlooked. I mean, you have to, there's so many yeah. years and so many shows, and then you look at '67, and there's you know a dozen like, dozen shows, right. a handful more that are you know undated. Uh, comps of studio stuff or uh mislabeled right. completely mislabeled stuff right and you know that's i mean that's another that's one of the fun things about 67 is that like i said there's there's there are a lot of mysteries to it so these shows that have dates that have been circulating for years that can't possibly be right based on like what we know about when when various songs were written or when things happened and you kind of get this very you get like this sort of more finer, fine-grained picture of, of, of dead history, you know, thinking about these kind of, like, mystery mystery dates and, like, you know, trying to re- recalculate when things maybe actually happened. Um, like, I guess the, the first show of the year was, uh, or the first tape of the year, I should say. Um, and actually, before we totally jump into that, I definitely wanted to shout out to the Grateful Dead historical blogs um, that... Uh, definitely sort of frame my understanding of, of this stuff. Um, there's the amazing, uh, wait, is it, is it dead, dead essays that we're, we're working off of did this great post, sort of like a, a guide to 1967 dead dates where it sort of sorts through the issues of each, uh, recording. Um, uh, but also there's, um, Corey, uh, Corey Arnold's amazing Hooterol and blog, um, he also has lost live dead, but in, on Hooterol, and he's done these series of posts where he's just trying to make an updated uh, performance list for the dead, like just every single place they played. And, you know, Dead Base has done that, and Dead List kind of has that, but neither of them are really updated frequently. And so Corey is kind of sort of making this nice little anchor of, of Grateful, Grateful Dead scholarship. Um, yeah. So kind of listening to these 67 tapes was, was you know... I was doing it very much with uh, the, with the Dead Essays blog and the, and Corey's various blogs as kind of my my guides. Yeah, I want to echo that. I I, I know I've mentioned uh, Corey's blogs, Who to Roll in and Lost Live Dead, on here before. I and I rely on them uh, and this Dead Essays site uh, quite a bit when I do research yeah. for an episode because I may think I know what happened in April '78 from Dead Base or whatever, <laughs> whatever but you know, you can really get, you can get a lot more meat once you start digging into what these guys have uncovered. Um, right. And right, so, yeah, right, right. The, we will, I will 
you can actually find links and this is for our listeners. You can find links to um, Lost Live Dead and Hooter Rollin' on the Broke Down Pod blog. But uh, I will also have a link in the uh, show notes for this to this Dead Essays post on 67 Dead Tapes that, you know, we're we're using that as our reference to kind of go through these shows chronologically for this thing tonight. So, um, and that leads us to our first tape, which yeah. was it January 14th, 1967, The Human Being? Yeah. Yep, indeed, which uh, only three, well... <laughs> Three songs allegedly circulate, but one of them is not actually the BN. Um, so the BN is, you know, really the BN tape. I find more fascinating because of the story of the, the human being, you know, the, you know, guy parachuting out of the sky, you know, drop, you know, you know, Owsley giving out free acid, you know, the whole, the whole mythos of the the, the, the human being is amazing. Right. But that, doesn't totally live up to that. It does have that. Uh, it does have Charles Lloyd jamming with them. I think that's the only concrete example that we have of that. Um, on Schoolgirl, is that what he's on? Yeah, he's uh, plays yeah, flute yeah, and does some vocalizations uh, and some, yeah, uh, on, yeah, on Schoolgirl. And then and then so then we have the first misdated bit of '67, which is this Morning Dew at the end, which is on I think pretty much all the circulating copies. But yep. it's got two drummers, um, and it's different sound quality, and is a lot slower than Morning Dew was when they were playing it in that later in the spring. So it's probably like a '68 version, as as the filler there, which yeah. isn't to say they didn't play Morning Dew that day, but that's not it. Yeah, it, it is really good though. So if you end up on the yeah, it's team, a great version. You too. should <laughs> check out. I like the violi on this show too. It's um yeah. You know the quality of the tape is uh, not bad, and uh, there's there's um, you know there's this bit where I think it's it's not clear if it's Jerry, um, he, I, he I think it's Jerry, but he's asking Bill or Phil to slow down. I couldn't quite make out which name because he's like, "Hey, Bill, Bill, <laughs> slow down," and then uh, right. presumably uh, you know he's got to set up the accelerando that happens in the jam. Um, it's pretty shreddy, and uh, and at the end of the jam, you can hear pigs shouting at him, "Yo, sing the last verse!" And this, <laughs> I, I like stuff like that on these tapes. Yeah, um, totally. Just a, a little peek into what's really happening on stage. But I don't know about that schoolgirl. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that a '67 schoolgirl was the best showcase for jazz flute. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's it, it is fascinating tape. Yeah. Let's see. Should, I guess we should progress. Let's just progress chronologically yeah. through the tapes, and we can get to the misdated ones at their their new proper dates. I think. Yeah, I think that's the right way to go. Yeah. So um, after that, the next circulating tape. Uh, well, in between after after the B N and before our next tape, the Dead went down to L A. and recorded their first album. Um, and you know, played lots of shows between those two points. But uh, the next circulating tape is March 1867 at Winterland. Um, two sets um, yeah. before before and after Chuck Berry. Um, I'm surprised they didn't back Chuck Berry, as that was kind of the common thing for him in at least years after that. Was uh, Chuck Berry would show up with a guitar and start playing right. the songs with whatever, whatever oh, I... band the promoter hired. 
I think that was the the case of this show too. I feel like Steve Miller was maybe in in the chat. I've seen the list in for the band. It was a bunch. I mean, it was a bunch of San Francisco guys. Right. Um, I'm not sure why it wasn't the Dead. Um, good question. Um, there was that tape of them back in Bo Diddley um, a couple years later, and then they they did they did they backed somebody at at uh, at the in room when they were the Warlocks. There's this historian McNally's book about how about how they would do that. But yeah, no, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that actually. That is, yeah, that would have been interesting here in the back in Chuck. Yeah, it would have been quite a thing. Uh, and this was, especially as they, you know, went on to cover a fair number of his songs. Um, yeah, so, already did. <laughs> and this is uh, right after the album was released. I think the same week the album came out. Yeah. And yeah, there's, oh, there's, there's also that great recording from uh, KMPX, of uh, Phil and Jerry with Tom Donahue uh, just playing singles for a couple hours and talking about music. It's uh, I, I really enjoy that recording as well. Yeah, that's that's a good listen. Um, so this 318 show, uh, yeah, the, the recording we have is pretty good. I think it's probably fairly commonly listened to. It seems to be one of the uh, like the higher rated shows on the archive. Um, the same yeah. thing, which is a great version of the same thing, was on the So Many Roads set. Um, yeah, it's, a, uh, it's like the last the last one that we know about until like 71, I think. And the same thing is really great. Uh, it's The same thing is a really good showcase for, for, for Weir, actually, and kind of hearing his expanding rhythm guitar skills. Mm -hmm. um, it gets kind of... Uh, just sort of hearing them push the jam past blues is, is really is really fascinating to me. Um, there's a guy, uh, a dead scholar named Graham Boone, who who charts out versions of Dark Star. That's you know one of his that's his his thing. Um, but he he called out a version of the same thing. I think from the Matrix from late '66, and kind of called out Weir's rhythm playing there as um, Weir, you know, Bob always kind of shouts out McCoy Tyner's left hand as, as you know, like his influence on rhythm playing. And that, and, and Graham kind of centered in on, on some of his playing on the same thing, jams, as kind of places where you can actually like audibly hear him phrasing things in ways similar, similarly to McCoy Tyner. Wow. wow. I have to dig into yeah. that. You have to send me yeah. a link to that. Yeah, so they and so a lot of great songs on this. There's a uh, really uh, this number of good Pigpen uh, showcases. Uh, it hurts me too. Um, what is it? Next time you see me, uh, there's a morning dew on here. Kind of a longish dancing, uh, quick and dirty golden road, and a really right. hot tight cream puff war because they're all pretty short. Um, this yeah, for you know, definitely the first first golden road that we have um, of two, but uh, probably one of the very, very first ones, because they wrote it um, in, they didn't, so they recorded the album, and then the record company asked for a single, and, and they wrote Gold, The Golden Road, and they uh, recorded that a little bit later in San Francisco, um, so that was probably still, like, one of the very freshest versions of that tune. Oh, wow. And then, uh, so then we jump ahead chronologically to almost a month to April eighth, and this is a little oh amazing. yeah the, the, yeah total oddity I, I didn't know about this one until I started 
getting into the 67 stuff deeply this year. Um, the Dead made a couple of appearances on, on local TV, and this may have been the only one, only one where they actually just where they were able to play live on uh, KPIX in San Francisco. Uh, Ralph Gleason, the great uh, jazz critic and pop critic, uh, interviewed them. Um, and, um, yeah, it's got the last version of Cream Puff War, which is, you know, kind of interesting by itself. But the, the real interesting thing on it is, is this version of Walkin' Blues uh, that's a mashup that they did, uh, the, you know, the KPIX people did, where they alternate between the Dead's version of Walkin' Blues and Quicksilver Messenger Services version of Walkin' Blues. Right, Which is, you know, as a way to demonstrate, the, you know, the ways the two bands approach it. Um, but what also makes it interesting is that's the only documentation, the only, like, you know, recording we have of the Dead doing walking blues in the 60s. You know, it's, I yeah. think they brought it back in the 80s, I guess, maybe the late, yeah, probably the early 80s. <laughs> you can tell my, my, my dates get a little worky <laughs> after a certain point. But, that's all um, right. I, th- I think that uh, is close enough for Grateful Dead. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's funny. That's, that's actually an expression. That's an expression in our in our household. Close enough for the Grateful Dead. Um, so Quicksilver played also played their song "Pride of Man" and another group, uh, the Wildflowers, played on the show. Oh yeah, yeah. The, I I really like that Wildflowers tune. I couldn't find any other information about them. Yeah, um, I gave it one listen, and then I kind of went back and studied the Walking yeah. Blues. It was, it was yeah. <laughs> Really bizarre. So um, why don't we go ahead and cut to some music for a few minutes and let everybody hear. We're going to play a little bit of 318, and uh, we're going to play some of that uh, from that television show. A little bit of the interview and uh, the two dead cuts from the television show. Just a bottle like glue 
In the last year and a half, San Francisco has literally exploded with music. The rock bands are some of the most interesting bands in the country, and one of the most exciting and interesting bands in San Francisco these days is the Grateful Dead. We're talking to the Grateful Dead, particularly to Jerry Garcia, the lead guitarist. Jerry, what kind of music does the Grateful Dead play? <laughs> loud. <laughs> loud music. Loud um, music. Dance music for dances at dances. Where does it come from? Do you write it all your songs? Uh, no. We uh, we write some <laughs> we of it. We steal it from a lot of places. Yeah, we steal it from a lot of places. As many as that's, we can find, as a matter of fact. We're clever thieves. And... Uh, we're clever things. Steal it from a lot of places and uh, rearrange. Sort of it. like the Baroque era. Yeah. Do you have any particular bank walls of music that you raid periodically? Uh, old blues, um, new blues, uh, jug, band. jug band music. Uh, uh, we've been getting into uh, stealing classical licks and uh, jazz. Anything. anything you don't that sound we can like hear. other bands. Why is this? Well, because uh, <laughs> because we're not other bands. We're the Grateful Dead, and uh, we've been together for long enough to where we uh, are used enough to each other to be able to play together. Yeah. <laughs> even when you take even when you take old tunes or tunes that uh, uh, have old influences in them, you still don't sound like the originals. You sound no, because like because that's not who we are. We're not we're not trying to recreate anything. Uh, do you change them around? Oh, freely, freely. Uh, that, like I say, any any one song could have lots of stuff in it from lots of different sources, but it always comes out uh, nothing like the original, and and also nothing like anything else. Electronically, <laughs> do you do you work at things electronically for different sounds and devices? We're getting into it more than we have been. Uh, we've been mostly just uh, working on getting better at our instruments, and. Uh, the electronic stuff is stuff that you discover playing at enormous volumes that you play at in the big auditoriums. And pretty soon your guitar is feeding back and, and there's this insane sound coming out of it, you know. And uh, uh, you find that by fiddling around the right way, you can control it to a certain extent. And uh, that becomes part of uh, the way you play. You use this in the way oh, sure. you play. Yeah. Do you can't you can't not if you ignore it it just gets louder and louder. <laughs> <laughs> it takes over the entire yeah, thing. <laughs> do you write things out in arrangements that you're going to do? Um, sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Only if the record company insists. Right. If the record company insists, then then. then uh... <laughs> do you do them the same way time after time when you play them? Uh, I don't think so. There are a few that are more or less the same most of the time. Um, in general contour, you might say. Right. But the events inside them are always the same. And the thing that we really like is when it's not, you know, when something new suddenly happens and we're, we're suddenly <laughs> playing differently than we used to. You know, it's just this, this sort of uh, evolutionary stuff goes on. What kind of thing can tick that off in the course of playing a tune? Uh, playing it long enough. Good vibes. Playing it long enough, yeah, and a, and a good situation, you know, a lot of feedback from the audience, and, and uh, you know, dancing and and uh, you know, playing in the big big auditoriums is conducive to that. Well, things that you've done yourself in music will will suggest themselves to you at various points in playing a tune and individual performance. Uh, or your serial composer will uh, come up with some. Uh, yeah, that's that's mm -hmm. kind of what happens. It's just all of a sudden, you know, uh, another possibility reveals itself to mm -hmm. our wondering eyes and and uh, and ears. Or somebody will play something and it suggests another place to go. Right? Change the whole tune. Right. Uh, yeah.
like to let it go as far as it'll go. What what song are you going to play for us? Uh, a song called Cream Puff War. Did you write this? Uh, yeah, I wrote this particular song. <laughs> it's the only song I've ever written completely all the way. It's my song. And it steals from all those places? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, this, just the actual song, the melody and the words, but the rest of it is... Uh, to the extent that all of us in our own playing steal from everywhere. Right. Okay, let's hear it. Okay.
build a rainbow machine. Okay, so that was It Hurts Me Too and Dancing in the Streets from the 31867 show at the Winterland. And then from April 8th, 67 at KPIX Television, Ralph Gleason interviewing Jerry, then Cream Puff War, and then Walkin' Blues with, from both The Grateful Dead and Quicksilver Messenger Service. That's weird stuff, man. <laughs> weird, wacky, and wild stuff, as they say. Yeah. Um, and then the tapes, there's, a, there's another gap. So there's a couple yeah. stuff that's mislabeled in the middle here, but then it's really effectively a big gap until Monterey pop. Right, right, right. Which, you know, the dead didn't really like that performance particularly. And, I, you know, I'm not sure that's my favorite performance of the year either, but definitely, you know, fascinating, fascinating stuff, both historically and, well, historically, <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, this um, is standard, uh, standard move for the Grateful Dead to show up for the big, big thing and uh, kind of blow it. Kind of blow it. Right. Kind of um, blow it. There's, I, I mean, mean, that show made it, some people's careers. Yeah, I mean, it would be hard not, you know, but at the same time, they're playing after the Who and before Hendrix, I think. Ooh. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Who smashed their gear, and then the Dead come on and play their set, and then Hendrix plays his set and burns his guitar. And the, you know, it's not a it's not an easy easy slot to play. <laughs> not at um, all. And for that, you know, the Dead. I mean, I guess everybody was kind of a junior band at that point, but the Dead were, you know, 
The Dead were definitely, you know, not a mainstream band by any stretch of the imagination at that point. Um, you know, they had they had a, a record out and all, but you know, they were they were the local they were the local talent kind of. <laughs> right, but this was the um, same. This is the same gig where uh, when Janice went out and played, and then they realized they didn't have the cameras on. They gave her another set. So right, it, is, yeah, yeah. it could have been could have been the big big blow up but it was not to be for the grateful dead they did do like yeah. a 20 minute alligator caution sequence which is pretty cool and kind of early for that kind of expansiveness on those tunes i think yeah i mean well that's the, i mean that's the first uh circulating alligator i think um which also means that it's um uh the first lyrics by robert hunter which is kind of right. which is kind of cool um, is that the one where somebody, there's somebody, oh yeah, there's a, this is kind of another interesting Grateful Dead Festival thing. Um, and another note about what, 1967 being a mystery. There's a, a, a guest harmonica player on, on this recording that's not Pigpen. Like, it's somebody who doesn't know the tunes. Um, so it's one of the, you know, that was the Dead's biggest show in 67, probably. Arguably. Yeah, let's say yes. Yeah, um, and yet there's still this mystery guest on it that hasn't, like, nobody's stepped forward to claim, oh yeah, I was the guy playing harmonica. <laughs> I mean, given, given the quality of the harmonica, I guess maybe I understand that a little bit. But, <laughs> same actually, but the same actually holds true for Woodstock. There's a, there's, a, there's a rando on the Woodstock Love Light who's, who's like, rapping about Chicago, like, oh, right, as, right, right as the song starts and... Nobody, nobody has been able to uh, identify the, the sketchy rando stage crasher. Um, I, th- I think I blocked yeah. that guy out. <laughs> uh, Ken Babs tells this great story about like how he, you know you can kind of see this happening a little bit in the footage, but it, his his job was to lead the guy away to like sort of peacefully um, get him off stage, and he did that by dangling a joint. <laughs> you can kind of <laughs> you can't really see it, but you can kind of maybe. You know, you can kind of see it if you want it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, Monterey Pop, Peter Tork guest appearance. That's kind of that's kind of the fun. Beatles are not here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> semi dose Peter Tork. <laughs> semi, yeah. Um, um, speaking of dose, so the next thing is uh, the Straight Theater seven twenty three sixty seven. Yeah, and I had only heard the full the fuller version of this recently. So this is the uh the legendary the only tape of the dead with Neil Cassidy. And it originally circulated on a flexi disc that came with um the dead book by Hank Harrison, which is Jesus, that's <laughs> That's a story. That's in a whole, itself. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's definitely that's 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 graduate level Grateful Dead studies. Um but Hank Harrison, father of Courtney Love <laughs> And genuine crazy person uh, put out this book with a plexi disc in it, um, and it's like how I don't know—is it like five murky minutes of, of Neil and the Dead? And there's this longer version that kind of started circulating more recently. Yeah, it's a um, five-minute version. I think I had it on a filler on a tape back in the '90s. Yeah, um, but yeah, I think the full version is about, or the full now like, full the fuller like 15 version. Fifteen minutes. Yeah, fifteen, like 15 minutes. minutes. And it was the thing that I, 
that you can tell from the fuller version is that they're just playing Love Light. On the, the fleshy disc, you kind of can't really tell what's going on. Right. But on the, the full the full page, you can hear that they're like you know starting Love Light and getting that going. And you get a couple of little interesting examples of um, kind of 60s psychedelic dead jamming going on in the background. It's, you know, it's, it's just sort of a little bit of a taste. Yeah, it it's kind of groovy. It it's kind of not always on Love Light. You know, there's a couple they they bring it back a couple times. You can even hear. You know, Neil kind of says, "Oh, plug plug in Big Ben's microphone," and you know he starts right. talking about it. And he and and but then his his flow continues, and then then he seems to almost get distracted by the music, and he starts kind of scatting to it, and then gets back onto saying his whatever you know whatever he's saying. I don't because I'm not going to attempt to quote him. Um, right. Well, there's there's then, a really good um, annotation of that online. Ken Babs uh, from the Pranksters, like transcribed the whole thing and like sort of it's like oh yeah this is who he was referring to here and this that and the other i have to dig that out it it reminds me though um and this this might be a a slight stretch but it reminds me of the 103191 show with keezy because they they just kind of they're so locked the band is so locked in their jamming um like really good telepathic jamming uh, they get out there a little bit. There's some uh, a brief bit for some kind of low key, almost feedbackish jamming. Uh, and right. Parts of it seem a little more Dark Star than Love Light, but it's still Love Light. Um, yeah. It, this is one of the few places. This is one of the few places where I almost, where I think I'd probably take a '90s jam over a '60s jam. Man, I love that that Keezy jam. I mean, I they one of the best they wa- jams. <laughs> They lock into this, this magical, like, it's like, it's 90s dead, it's 90s dead, and then Keezy comes out, and it suddenly, it could be the, like, it could be 70s dead. Like, it's just for this brief few minutes, they get into this super tight focus, and then he leaves, and then, like, it lasts for another 30 seconds, and then it sort of evaporates again or something. But, like, that little it, yeah. slice of Halloween 91 is just like, holy God. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I, I mean, and not to mention, you know, kind of this, really intense emotional content about, you know, you know, the death of Bill Graham and, and the death of, of Keezy's son and, you know, yeah, how you like your blue eyed boy now. Home, yeah. Like, yeah, no, I, I, I get like actual like chills, like, you know, tear in the corner of my eye just thinking about that stuff. Yeah, that's me a, too. Definitely Every some time. of the powerful bad music. But yeah, good call on, on the, the really, there is that kind of, parallel between those two things um and really not that many examples of like stuff like that happening successfully on a dead tape it's funny that that rando from woodstock is kind of another surviving example of some somebody kind of like grabbing the mic while the dead jam and in that case that doesn't work he doesn't doesn't have the mojo um but yeah that you know presumably that kind of stuff happened way more frequently in the you know this in the 60s but not not nearly enough documentation of it. Yeah, not on tape. Yeah, um, not on tape. And spe- or so, not on tape. But not on tapes will be found yet. Yet. No, that's <laughs> I'll, I'll stay, opti- stay optimistic. <laughs> Keep some hope up that somebody will open the right closet and do the right, right, right. thing when they do. Um, yeah. Oh, and we we also, by the way, we also between um, before Monterey Pop, we, we there was the whole the Dead Day, their whole their first East Coast trip. There's so much missing from this year. It's right. really, so it, you know, and there are scattered reports from the Dead's New York 
you know, they were in New York for two weeks in June 67. There's some film from, um, from Tompkins Square Park that you can see a little fragment of in, in Long Strange Trip. Uh, there are a couple of set list reports, but nothing, no, no, no tapes. And I, I want tape from, from the dead in New York in 67. Probably not going to happen at this point. Yeah, at this point, people have moved out of those apartments and cleared out what yeah. they had. So, most likely. Um, yeah, but anyway, so the, the, next, next, the dead's next road trip after that was a uh, Bill Graham production in Toronto. It's like is it a week? Or they were in Toronto yeah, for a I, long I think it's time. Like five it's days like, or something like that. I don't have the the yeah, list in like, front of me, but it was, have... five, it was it was it was a bunch of days, and they also played at the afternoon shows a couple of times at Expo '67. Yeah, um, which is this kind of amazing sort of World's Fair kind of installation. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. But we only have recording purportedly from two of those shows and really only partial ones at that right um, right right so what we we have uh eight four uh august 4th and it's uh, again these were at the o'keefe center in toronto i've got notes about a viola lee big pretty big viola lee 20 minutes long um nuke potato yeah. which is That's the, the first known version yeah and it's it's only it's about seven minutes long and jerry introduces it um uh, it's it's tight and there's ex that's a pretty good quality tape. Um, yeah, um, and to to, to linger on New Potato Could Lose for a second. That song was a, a real breakthrough for the Dead. Really, um, the Dead. This is you know, and you know this maybe speaks to some of the reason why people don't listen to as much '66 and '67 Dead as 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 maybe I do, but. You know, 66 and 67, the dead were doing a lot of acid. Like, that was, you know, that was really part of their, their operation at that point. Um, but it kind of took a while for them to really be able to, to integrate that into their songwriting. They they were, you know, they were, the, the jams were expanding, specifically Viola Lee was expanding, and, and Turn On Your Love Light was, was expanding. But they hadn't yet really successfully written that into 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 a piece of music themselves and some of those early 65 66 dead originals are pretty complicated and they, they are i think attempts to sort of write like sort of the dead's idea of progressive pop music in 1966 and 1967s it's kind of i kind of see phil's fingerprints all over those yeah. like um you, you don't have to ask it's kind of the the the, the, the sort of the one that that i site frequently because it has like it has um it's like this sort of this weird rhythm and it's got like multiple key changes in it like there's a key change in the middle of the guitar solo all three verses are different like there's different arrangements of vocalists um and structures for the verses even um so like the, the, there was an ambition very early on for them to kind of like i think I'm, you know, interpreting it like this, like sort of take these grand psychedelic realizations and try to channel them into, into songwriting. But I don't think they really successfully were able to get into that until New Potato Caboose. Like, I, you know, I think the Golden Road is kind of like, an, you know, so, you know, it's still basically a garage song, but it's, you know, they're kind of hinting at these things. And I, yeah, and I, I New Potato Caboose is kind of like the first, like, really 
complicated dead song that, that kind of works. And I mean, they, you know, it didn't last terribly long in the dad's repertoire. You know, it, it's not, not an easy song to play, but it's a really, like, I think it, yeah, I think it's a very powerful early piece of dead music. Absolutely. And we will uh, get an example of that for everybody to hear coming up a little bit later in the year. Um, yeah. <laughs> But that, that was great. Uh, uh, Mindbender it seems a bit like maybe not. It's not quite as elaborate as you described. You don't have to ask, but it's another kind of they're they're driving right. toward writing a song about the psychedelic experience, but they don't really hit it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, can't come down. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the Warlocks tunes. <laughs> you can't can't get much more direct than than you can't right. come down for for being for being high. But yeah, there's kind of this, um, there's basically a lost Dead album, or a lost, like, Warlocks album, whatever you want to call it. There's kind of a dozen songs, even, maybe. I counted at one point. And it's, there's, there's like, almost a full album's worth of stuff that they stopped playing, um, basically by the time they recorded the, the, the first album. Some, some of it they recorded, you know, their outtakes, um, from the first album, that, that, that of, of this stuff, but you know things like Taste Bud, and and you know um, there's a couple there are a couple of pig pen there are a couple other pig pen tunes, and yeah there's there's, there's yeah a I lot. think I would put Lindy on that album. Um, it, we maybe have another a whole another right. podcast episode with that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so um, let's go to Rio Nito in nine three. Oh yeah, these, these these are. Yeah, these are major. Yeah, both both of these. These are nine. Uh, yeah, nine three is is my favorite sixty seven dead tape um, because of the, the amazing violin blues that just keeps going and going and going and keeps getting cooler and cooler and cooler. Um, but so yeah, the the Rionito shows it was it's this little from the pictures that I've looked at. It looks like this little sort of seaside, not seaside, this little uh, riverside motel resort area on the Russian river where it looks like people kind of stayed in cabins. It's kind of, you know, definitely very much the sort of the drive-in motel era of American history. And the dead apparently were also practicing there. That seems like what, what, what a couple of the, 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 the references say is so that they were up there, they were rehearsing at the, at the music, music hall and then gigging at night. And that was right after Robert Hunter had arrived back in, in the dead scene. Um, he had written, he wrote the lyrics to Alligator, but those were, he sent those in by mail. And um, Garcia wrote a letter to him and said, go, come back to San Francisco and be our lyricist. And this weekend, that, that weekend in Rio Nino, Labor Day weekend, 67, was his first weekend um, in residence as the dead lyricist. And his memory of it is that he, like, heard the dead jamming. He was lying on his bed in, in his little cabin thing, and he heard the dead jamming. And he wrote down the first ver the ver a verse to a song and brought it in and handed it to Jerry. And Jerry's like, oh, yeah, this is great. And it was Dark Star. And supposedly that was also the weekend that Dark Star was written, which is fascinating to me because Dark Star doesn't actually show up on any tapes until a couple months later. Um and live even a few months after that. Um, so it's interesting that they had this major tune kind of in the hopper, but not quite ready to play on stage. Um, but these two shows are amazing. They're, you know, the, uh, really early 
example of the dead plane, an out of town gig in in like a, in a in a club, yeah. basically. Um, and there's surprisingly few examples of that, and it's it's amazing. It, the sound quality is wonderful. There's all kinds of great left turns in the jams. Um, yeah, can't can't say enough good things about about the jams on these shows. The the midnight hour and the Viola Lee, and the dancing in the street, and the alligator. Yeah, the alligator. It's it's all. It's all fantastic. Yeah, this uh, Midnight Hour is on the fallout from the Phil Zone album that uh, they put out in the 90s. Phil picked that. He, he, I think he said in his notes that he was looking for one. You know, they used to get it out to 30 minutes, but he couldn't find any tapes of that, so he went with this one, um, which is still pretty right. long. The Viola Lee's uh, 20-some minutes long, and that's with a cut. Like, the very beginning of that is cut. Right, oh, yeah. Um, and then uh, big alligator, and I hear if you if you if you all go to the tape and listen to the alligator from nine three about t- almost eleven minutes in, I think you can hear the uh, there is a mountain Donovan. Oh, there, there's I one think, in that version as well. There is. A, I know the I know the Hollywood the Hollywood Bowl one from a few weeks after that jumped out at me. I didn't realize there was one. Um, yeah, even I earlier. It out there. So that cool. single came out in August. The Donovan single. There is a mountain came out in August, and and I, th- ah, I find right, it interesting right. though to think that what this is is an example of the Grateful Dead teasing contemporary popular music, which is at least later on very ungrateful dead. Right, true that they were still they were still very much learning contemporary true. songs at that point. You know, um, me and my uncle, which came into the repertoire that year, was, was a very new song. Um, Midnight Hour and the stuff that they learned from that they brought in from Otis Redding were all pretty fresh singles. So, I don't think it would have been that out of character for them to actually play it in that era. You know, the airplane were, were playing Fat Angel right. for that matter. Um, so, but yeah, but yeah, yeah, but 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 interesting hearing that melody in there. Yeah, it's very cool. And- um, and especially pre-almonds. Exactly. So let's go ahead and um, play the Viola Lee blues for everybody. Uh, I know you were a big, big fan of this, and I agree completely that yep. everybody should listen to it. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and play that uh, Viola Lee blues from September 3rd, 1967 in Rio Nido.